So it is it is a serious legal challenge. It's also a political challenge, but it's a challenge to the EU's legal order that I guess now the EU institutions are um, in a way struggling to respond to. For judges of a nation are only the mouth that pronounces the words of a law, inanimate beings who can moderate neither the strength nor the severity of a law. When Montesquieu wrote these words in the spirit of the laws in 1748, he laid out the ideal framework for the interaction between lawmakers and judges. Montesquieu's ideal vision, however, contrasts with the messy reality of the judiciary, who have to deal with unclear laws or even contradictory laws, a tension enhanced by the emergence of a new legal order, the European Union. Since the 1960s, the primacy of EU law has emerged as a sine qua non condition for the good functioning of the EU. But over the past months, a series of political and judicial actors have challenged the notion head-on. The most visible broadside against the primacy of EU law came from Warsaw, with a Polish constitutional tribunal ruling in its K321 decision that three articles of a, treat of a treaty on the European Union were unconstitutional. In the French presidential election, the primacy of EU law has also been under heavy fire, including from former Brexit negotiator Michel Barnier, a sign that the discontent is even felt within more centrist circles. In this episode, we tackle head-on this controversy with two experts of EU law, Nicole Skikluna, Assistant Professor in Government and International Studies at the University of Hong Kong, and Paul Craig, Emeritus Professor of Law at the University of Oxford. If you like the show, you can get more than common decency at Mace Magazine. Mace Magazine is a fantastic magazine on British and European politics, and we've been publishing every week for them some great articles where we build on the key takeaways of our episodes. So if you want more Uncommon Decency, I really recommend that you look up Mace Magazine online and you can see all the great articles Jorge and myself have been publishing over the past few weeks. Now, if you like the show and find yourself coming back most weeks to listen, please consider supporting the show through Patreon. We've been doing this in our spare time, and whilst it's definitely been worth the time, we've been paying all our physical and digital equipment out of our pockets and would love to be able to have extra resources to put together on special events or on improving our equipment or on many other cool projects we have in mind. So to our patrons, thanks a lot. We can't thank you enough for your help. For those of you on the fence, we can't promise you any special content yet. But if enough of you join our patron, we will consider adding paid tiers with special content for our patrons and special sessions with our followers. If you can't spare the money, no worries. But as always, you can rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcasts, for example. And I can't stress in this enough. These reviews really help us a lot to keep growing on the competitive podcast landscape. And lastly, continue sending us your comments and questions at Uncommon Decency Pod on Twitter or at UndecencyPod at gmail.com by email. Thanks a lot to all of you and on to the episode. Um, for this very important conversation, we're very glad to have with us Paul Craig. Professor Craig is a British legal scholar and a professor of English law at the University of Oxford and the author of many books on, on administrative and EU law, including EU law text, cases and materials, which he published in 2011. Um, Nikos Klikluna, you're an assistant professor of government and international studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. You recently published at, you recently published the politics of international law this year, and wrote an op-ed in Politico EU entitled Poland has a point about the EU's legal supremacy. I think that's a good segue to begin 
uh, with our first conversation. So, Jorge, why don't you uh, get us along? Right, absolutely. In, in, this, in this very op-ed that you mentioned, Francois, Professor Cicluna writes that the EU is an evolving experimental polity that is neither a fully-fledged federation nor merely a community of sovereign nation-states. Its shape and future are being decided by the member nations that constitute it, and that includes Poland, however problematic its positions may seem. Uh, so I guess starting with Professor Cicluna, could you maybe perhaps give us a little bit of the background history leading up to this recent ruling by, by Poland's constitutional court, and uh, what, what is at stake here in terms of the primacy of EU law? Uh, okay, well, uh, thank you again for inviting me on, and thank you for the question. Um, so in terms of the context, I suppose, uh, starting with the context in terms of the primacy of EU law, uh, this really is one of the, or perhaps the foundational value of the EU's legal order. And, and so what we mean by primacy, this refers to the principle of the doctrine that EU law takes precedence over conflicting national law and even national constitutional law in areas within which the EU has lawmaking competences. And it is one of the foundational, I mean, we can get into the respects in which the ultimate justifications and, and over primacy in the exact way it's been understood by the Court of Justice of the European Union versus some national courts, um, how that remains maybe unsettled. Uh, but the fact is, in legal theory and in practice, it is foundational of the EU's legal order. And so coming to the Polish decision, this recent decision of the Constitutional Tribunal, uh, this has very much challenged the primacy of EU law um, in a way that hasn't previously been done. So it is a fairly frontal challenge to key provisions of the EU treaties and the Court of Justice's interpretations of those provisions um, and to you know, the idea that those provisions and the interpretations of those provisions would prevail over EU law. So it is... It is a serious legal challenge. It's also a political challenge, but it's a challenge to the EU's legal order that I guess now the EU institutions are, um, in a way, struggling to respond to. Great. And, and Professor Craig, what do you make of this, this uh, frontal assault in, in the words of, of Professor Cicluna? Is it really that unprecedented? Do we have any record of other uh, constitutional tribunals and other members being against uh, the primacy of EU law? What do you, what's your take on this? Okay, so again, to echo what Nicole said, thank you for inviting me on. Great pleasure to be here and to be having this conversation. So I think just a couple of points by way of background to set the scene and to keep things in perspective. The first point is that no one, to my knowledge, seriously doubts that primacy is both a or supremacy is both foundational within the EU legal order and also that the EU simply could not exist if the, if the default position were not that in the event of a clash between EU law and national statutory law, then EU law would prevail. If that were not the case, then two consequences would follow. The first is that in a functional sense, the EU could not exist, because if it meant that every time a member state lost out in the ordinary decision-making process in the parliament, in the council, etc., that it could simply, as it were, pull up the cricket stumps and decide not to play and pass a statute in its own legal order, which was contravening that of the EU, then the whole thing would tumble down to the ground. That would also involve, in normative terms, a fundamental inequality between states. The whole point about a collectivity is sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And the whole point about the EU is it's like any form of collective action. You join the club and you take the benefits and you accept the burdens. So I think in a foundational sense, in that foundational sense, I don't think anyone, to my knowledge, doubts that EU law is and should be supreme over national law. Where you get contestation is around the margins about whether and in what circumstances a clash between EU law and, for example, a national constitution might be resolved one way or another. But I do think it's really important to keep that in perspective. We have had in the whole history of the EU, 
leaving aside the Polish case, about four instances over the entire history of the EU in which a national constitutional court has seriously questioned the primacy of EU law. And I don't think any of those come anywhere close to what the Polish court has done for various reasons which we can come on to. So while we've had decisions of the Bundeswehrfassungericht and the Danish Supreme Court uh, and one of the Czech courts, for example, none of those involve challenges, frontal challenges to, the, to primary EU law, by which I mean the actual treaty provisions. None of them involve the kind of frontal attack on the whole basis of the EU legal order which is inherent in the Polish decision, which is why the Polish decision has created such a stir. Well, that's a good, good segue on, on, on Poland. Um, um, Professor Skifluna, can you kind of walk us through what is going on in Poland, maybe not just for ruling in itself, but kind of a legal context, uh, the political context behind uh, the tensions of the past few weeks? Yeah, so the tensions of the past few weeks really stretch back into tensions that have been ongoing for years. And basically since the Polish Law and Justice Party, the PIS Party, came to power in 2015, uh, the Polish government led by PIS has been engaged in systematic efforts to bring the Polish judiciary under political control. Uh, so to put it differently, it's that the Polish government has been systematically violating the principle of judicial independence and principles of the rule of law. So these actions, and this involves things like um, forcing the retirement of some judges or trying to stack the constitutional tribunal itself, which made this latest decision, stacking it with government loyalists, uh, creating a new disciplinary chamber to discipline judges. So, so a, a series of actions that have been deemed to be violating the principle of judicial independence. So these actions have produced a string of cases um, at the European level with the, before the Court of Justice of the European Union, but also in Strasbourg with, uh, in relation to the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, finding that aspects of these judicial reforms violate Poland's own constitution, that they violate EU law, that they, that they violate the European Convention on Human Rights. So just focusing for a moment on the cases that concern EU law, uh, many of these have come to the Court of Justice of the European Union via preliminary references from Polish courts. So in other words, EU law, the EU treaties, uh, have been providing an avenue for Polish judges to resist the Polish government's agenda, right? the agenda to bring the Polish courts under political control. Um, and so it, it seems, seems to me that this decision of the Constitutional Tribunal on the 7th of October, it seems to be primarily aimed at closing off that avenue so it seems most directly targeted at the Polish courts that are trying to resist the government's agenda by bypassing the, the, um, what the government is doing and trying to go to the EU treaties and EU law right, and uphold EU legal obligations. So uh, it seems that the, the EU's legal order and the principle of uh, supremacy are not the direct targets, although they're pretty serious collateral damage. And, and I agree with what Professor Craig said, that this is not like disagreements on the margins that have occurred before. This is much more fundamental. Um, I, just, to, just as a caveat, the full reasoning of the Constitutional Tribunal hasn't been released yet, so we would have to wait and see that for a kind of full assessment. But in the short judgment, the Constitutional Tribunal is, is essentially affirming that the Polish Constitution is the highest legal authority in the Polish legal order, uh, and that several articles of the Treaty on European Union, as interpreted by the Court of Justice, violate the constitution, the Polish constitution, and therefore are invalid. So yes, it is a very broad uh, frontal attack, but it's in the context um, of what's been going on in Poland in terms of attempts by the government to undermine judicial independence and reign in national courts and stop national courts from going to the European court. Right. And uh, Professor Craig, what do you make of this? Um, are you, would you agree that this uh Front, this this is this um, challenge to the primacy of EU law coming from the Polish constitutional tribunal is uh, I mean are the the fears of Polexit for instance overblown in, in your view? Uh, so we can come on to Polexit in just a moment, but just to say I mean I agree very much with Nicole's background analysis. Let me just amplify a couple of points. So. 
There's simply no doubt whatsoever that this decision cannot be seen in isolation. There, um, the, there is a, a very rich and now extensive literature on the way in which Kaczynski in Poland and Orban in Hungary have undermined, have been engaged in democratic backsliding, illiberal democracy, competitive authoritarianism, all of that. There's a really rich literature, both by lawyers and by political scientists, on the way in which they have captured organs of the state and undermined the constitutional machinery by both constitutional amendment and indeed by statutory amendment as well. A really interesting article by Bernat and Ziakolsky by showing the way in which even statute has undermined and bypassed central tenets of the constitutional order. So I think it's really important just to keep this judgment in perspective. Not only is this judgment going a lot further than any judgment of the Bundeswehrfassungericht or the Danish Supreme Court or whatever, but we simply cannot ignore the fact that this judgment is given by a constitutional tribunal, which uh, the very independence of which has been wholly undermined. It is very much now a handmaiden of the government, as attested to once again in a very extensive literature. And that is further attested to by the fact that 27 judges of the Constitutional Tribunal in Poland wrote uh, a note protesting against the judgment, and that was followed up by a scholarly piece by Stanley Biernat and Eva uh, Latowska, both judges from the Constitutional Tribunal of high renown prior to the takeover of the Constitutional Tribunal by Kaczynski, and they have both engaged in, they wrote a piece which, um, as it were, took apart the reasoning of the constitutional in uh, tribunal in Judgment 321. And they took it apart by reference to the very provisions of the Polish constitution, which the constitutional tribunal were purporting to rely on. And they also pointed out that the Constitutional Tribunal's reasoning did not sit at all with and was not at all compatible with previous seminal rulings of the Constitutional Tribunal about the relationship between EU law and Polish constitutional law, particularly the very first seminal ruling K1804, in which the Constitutional Tribunal articulated clearly and elegantly the relationship between constitutional law in Poland and EU law. So just to emphasize, I do think that this is an extreme judgment in terms of primacy given by a court which has been stripped of any real substance of independence. Sure. And in, in, in your piece, uh, Professor Sikuna, you, you seem to, to argue as well that, that the fears of Polexit are overblown. And, and, uh, and to argue that point, you point to uh, other uh, cases in, in other member states where uh, similar rulings, compar comparable rulings, have not meant that, you know, in, in Germany, they, they have not meant that, that German, Germany is, is uh, careening toward exiting the EU. Do you think, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on this point that, that uh, the talk of, of Polexit is, is overblown? Sure. Um, so, I mean, firstly, again, with, with the, in the case of the German Constitutional Court, it's been engaged in a decades-long dialogue in some respects with the Court of Justice. Uh, and so the German Constitutional Court and the Court of Justice have different views on the source of ultimate authority and, and the question of ultimate authority in the EU's constitutional order, but they've been engaged in a genuine dialogue over decades. And so this is this is not uh, this is not like the Polish decision, which is again much more of a frontal assault. Um, so in the German case there's been a concerted attempt over a long period of time to deal with certain ambiguities um, and to maintain a, a, a relationship characterised by sincere cooperation and mutual restraint. So just so coming back to Poland, and again, even though the decision of the Polish Constitutional Tribunal is much more extreme and much more of a frontal assault, 
uh, polexit or, or polyve, if you want to call it that, is still not realistic. Whether you consider it, whether you consider it as a fear of polexit or as a potential solution to the EU's Poland problem, I, I think simply that it's not going to happen. Uh, and, and just to elaborate on that a bit, uh, firstly, that the prevailing view on Article 50 is that it, it has to be deliberately triggered by a member state in accordance with that state's constitutional requirements. And this decision of the Constitutional Tribunal doesn't meet that uh, that that level, that, that test of triggering Article 50. So I don't think that Article 50 can be de facto triggered or constructively triggered by these kinds of actions. Also, the European Union can't force a member state out and it would be highly damaging to the EU itself to try. So I, I don't consider that a realistic um, option. More creative options that some scholars have suggested, so for example, one suggestion would be that all of the other member states or all of them bar Hungary could th themselves trigger Article 50 and basically leave the EU, leave Poland and Hungary in it and start a kind of EU 2.0. I mean, it's it's creative, but also highly unrealistic. So I think, uh, I, I think to summarise that Polexit is a bit of a red herring. Um, this decision and, and the context in which it was taken is a serious challenge to the EU's legal order. It's a very serious challenge to the EU as a community of values. But it's, it's better and I think much more productive to focus on the tools that the EU does have its, at its disposal rather than a much more extreme and, and in my view, highly unrealistic option such as Polexit. And Professor, Professor Craig, what's, what are your thoughts on the kind of um, possibility in, in all the different scenarios that Nicole Waters... Uh, so thank you. I, um, in my view, I think that the... I don't think it's... I don't think Polexit or Polib is going to happen tomorrow. Um, and uh, Nicole put on the table a number of reasons why that's unlikely. We can, however, press a little bit further forward. Um, firstly, there are open questions about what constitutes a triggering of Article 50. Of course, Poland is denying, and the Polish Prime Minister is denying that they want to trigger Article 50. Um, but there is some quite sophisticated scholarship out there about what form of what can constitute notification about um, leaving. So that's, as it were, strictly in terms of Article 50. The second point, I guess, which one should make is that, of course, there are political reasons why, leaving aside the legal dimension, there are political reasons why it is unlikely that Poland is going to be forced out politically by the political organs of the EU. Why is that so? Well, for a concatenation of reasons. Partly it's got a buddy in the form of Hungary. Partly also the EU is still sore, in inverted commas, after Brexit, and it is very wary about what might be the domino effect or the second-order consequences of another state leaving or another state being forced to leave. So I'm not holding my breath and expecting Polexit tomorrow or any time soon. However, having said that, I do think that if the Polish court and the Polish legal system is serious about K321, and the implications it has for the enforceability or non-enforceability of EU law in Poland, then I simply do not see how, in the short or medium term, a country can realistically remain within the EU law, within the EU on those terms. If a state is saying that it refuses to accept fundamental precepts of the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary. If a state is saying that it will not accept EU rules which are seeking to, pr to protect lower courts below the constitutional court, constitutional tribunal, and will not allow 
EU law to protect those judges in order that they can carry out their fundamental obligations under EU law, both to apply EU law in cases which come before them and also to send preliminary rulings to the EU. If that's what K321 really means, then you're having a state within the EU, which is not only an illiberal democracy with all the problems that that entails, but in purely legal terms, I simply do not see how it is compatible with the fundamental precepts of the EU treaty for a state to remain in the EU on those terms. And this is just in a completely different planet, ballpark, whatever you want to call it, from the judgment in Vice or the judgment in Galweiler, which involved a discrete part of secondary law, which was then resolved um, intra-judicially uh, or inter-judicially between the uh, CJEU and the Bundeswehrfassungericht. So I don't think this problem is going to go away. But could we maybe have kind of a more um, general problem with the primacy of EU law beyond the kind of case of, of Poland? Uh, we talked about what happened in, in the with German court of Castro. Um, um, although, you know, as we said, it's much more substantial work that's happening in Poland. There's kind of a general tension around this topic and as you said, the kind of um, uh, the legal pyramid between constitutional, the constitution and EU law isn't always that clear. Um, uh, I was looking into the uh, French constitutional court ruling um, a few weeks ago, in which they fleshed out the concept of um, um, aspects which would be a threat to the inherent constitutional identity of France. Um, and also kind of more generally on the political front, was actually quite struck to hear not just radical firebrands like Marine Le Pen or Éric Zemmour or Jean-Luc Mélenchon attacking EU law, but Michel Barnier. Michel Barnier being kind of this institutional European figure saying there's an issue with the primacy of EU law, especially on, on questions of immigration. Um, do, do the Polish have a case? Is there a real debate on um, how EU law and constitutional work, law work together? Uh, should that be fleshed out? Is there kind of a political solution or judicial solution to that kind of um, grey zone, I, if I could say? Nicole? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of issues there to unpack. There has been an ongoing debate at the level of constitutional theory, and, and, and this is something that the theory of constitutional pluralism has tried to understand. That, I mean, if we come back to primacy and how it is established in the first place, so... Primacy was not written into the Treaty of Rome. So it was not explicitly written into the Treaty of Rome. It's not something that the founding member states of the European Economic Community specifically put into that treaty. It comes from the case law of the Court of Justice of the European Union. So the Court of Justice read primacy into the treaty for the reasons that Professor Craig already said, because without primacy, the what was then the European Economic Community, I'll just say the European Union, it doesn't function. It doesn't function. And so from a legal point of view, the principle of primacy, it is what makes the European Union work. And it's one of the things that makes the EU, again, from a legal perspective, look like a federation, because this is the kind of arrangement you would have in a federal state, that you, there needs to be some kind of hierarchical principle for dealing with conflicts between the law of the federation and the law of the constituent parts of the federation. And if the federation is to function at work, then you would expect that the law of the federation takes precedence. So this is what the Court of Justice established through its own case law in the 1960s, so the Costa case of 1964. Um, and in, in, in practice, even though the member states themselves hadn't agreed to explicitly put it in the treaties, the member states and the national courts have accepted and affirmed and practiced the doctrine of EU primacy. However, at the margins, and again at the level of constitutional theory, there are differences between how the Court of Justice views EU law as being a kind of, so the EU has been constitutionalised, right? So the founding treaties are the constitutional documents. It's its own constitutionalised legal order. It's its own EU law is its own source of authority. It doesn't rest either on international law or on the law of the member states. It's its own source of authority. It's self-authorising. 
And many national constitutional courts haven't quite accepted that. And, and so the paradigmatic case is the German constitutional court that maintains that um, it, the German constitutional court, in its role as the guardian of the German basic law of the German constitution, um, ultimately is responsible for making sure that key principles of the German constitution are adhered to and are maintained. And that if, in theory, if there could be some kind of clash between a fundamental German constitutional principle and a principle of EU law, um, that the German constitution would have to take precedence. Right? So some fundamental matter of constitutional identity. So this, in a nutshell, is the idea of constitutional identity review. But it has remained uh, theoretical. Um, it has remained theoretical. And where there have been differences on, on uh, specific technical matters like the bias case, the PSPP case. Um, I think those kind of conflicts are manageable. Um, so again, the Polish case is very different, but you know, comparing the two, so the PSPP decision, the vice decision, um, I think actually the reaction to that decision um, was probably a bit overblown. So you know, responses to the, that uh, vice decision saying that the, the German court has uh, launched a legal missile into the heart of the EU or, or the German court is threatening the EU's legal order. Um, I think that those reactions were overblown. Um, and it, I think it's interesting that many observers who made those kinds of comments are now at pains to show that the Polish constitutional tribunal decision is nothing like the German constitutional court. So it's not a pattern at all that this decision is unique. Um, and there are indeed many differences uh, so I don't actually think that the PSPP decision was the kind of existential threat to EU law that it was made out to be. Um, the EU can well live with constructive ambiguity and with uh, differences of opinion at the level of constitutional theory about the question of ultimate authority. But the Polish court is not engaged in that kind of dialogue. It's not playing that game. Um, so in that way, it's not, uh, and again, it's it, yes, it's a captured constitutional tribunal. So it is, uh, uh, that's one thing we haven't mentioned explicitly, but this recent decision of the Polish Constitutional Tribunal, it was made on an application by the Polish Prime Minister. So the Polish Prime Minister essentially asked for this finding and, and he got this finding. Um, so this is not a kind of good faith uh, constitutional dialogue. Um, that's in the legal realm. And then, you know, you, you mentioned what's happening with French uh, presidential or potential presidential candidates, right? So that's coming to the political realm. Uh, and that is interesting in that potentially we're seeing or we will be seeing a kind of uh, political reopening of those debates, which again have never been absolutely settled, right, either legally or politically. But there's been this accommodation that's worked for so long. So I suppose we'll wait and see how um, developments in France unfold and who the presidential candidates end up being and what their rhetoric is. I mean, Michel Barnier, I agree that it was quite surprising uh, for him to be using that kind of rhetoric, even allowing for the fact that, yes, he's campaigning and he thinks this is, this is going to work for him. This is how he's campaigning. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that unfolds and whether in, in political terms there is going to be more attention to uh, these issues that have never been completely fully resolved from a constitutional mm -hmm. point of view. And Professor Craig, what do you make of the idea that maybe that kind of legal uh, layering of EU law and constitutional law shouldn't be a kind of very well-organized French garden, but should be open to kind of more constructive ambiguity? So, um, thank you. On this point, I think we need to bear in mind two related issues. On the one hand, uh, the what the German courts have done they have, since the inception of the treaty, engaged in a dialogue with the EU, and they had three kind of pushback points, fundamental rights, ultra-virus, i.e. something being beyond the powers of the EU, and national constitutional identity. Now, I think it's quite significant and well known that on the first two fundamental rights in the Internationale Handels Gesellschaft case, Solange Ein, and then in the Ultravirus case with the Maastricht judgment followed by the Honeywell judgment. In both of those cases, the German court itself pulled back. That is, it did not deny the control that it was 
adumbrating or that it had articulated, but what it was doing was making clear in Solang, in the second Salanga case and in the Honeywell case in relation to fundamental rights and ultra-virus respectively, it was making very clear that the circumstances in which it, the German Federal Constitutional Court, would think it right to invoke these controls would be much more limited than one would have thought from a reading of the original Salanga decision and from a reading of the Maastricht decision. So they make clear, for example, in Honeywell, yes, they'll maintain a, an ultra-virus lock, an ultra-virus control, and they'll be the ultimate determinor, but they make very clear that they're not going to push this nuclear strike button unless, on the one hand, the uh, action, the, ultra, the, in inverted commas, ultra-virus action by the EU is manifest, extreme, obvious, egregious, and on the other hand, that it relates to a central feature of the European legal and constitutional order. So the German courts are mindful of the, uh, have, have, as it were, um, in this dialogue, dialed back, as it were, the circumstances in which they would invoke their own power. Um, now, in relation to constitutional identity, which came up particularly in the Lisbon judgment, I think this is, uh, and which you had a flavour of in the recent French decision, I think this is more dangerous or difficult terrain. But it's also difficult terrain uh, for a reason which is not so initially self-evident. We constantly think about courts, national constitutional courts, putting limits, locks, whatever metaphor you want on the CJEU. But the consequence of those locks has uh, results, second order consequences for the national constitutional court in the following sense. Other things being equal, the broader the range of constitutional identity locks you, the National Constitutional Court, purport to impose, then the broader the remit of possible cases that you have and encourage coming to you from your own people or someone in your own country seeking to ask you, all right, don't apply this particular piece of EU law because it in involves an incursion, an unjustified incursion on constitutional identity point three or constitutional identity point three A. And that then poses very significant problems for uh, national constitutional courts. But it's all very well to say that, you know, for example, the national identity of country X means that on topic Y, the EU can't uh, go further than it should. But topic Y is usually a topic, and every topic listed in the Lisbon judgment fell into this category um, uh, of, uh, in Germany. Every topic on which they list as, as being part of the national constitutional identity is something which the EU already has clear competence to some extent within the existing treaties. So what the National Court, Constitutional Court, in imposing this kind of lock is actually doing is also providing, as it were, an albatross around its own back or yoke for its own self in the sense of it's all very well articulating each of these points of constitutional identity at a relatively high level of abstraction. But then you have to um, uh, pay the piper when the piper comes calling, which means that when someone says, right, now refuse to apply this particular piece of EU law because it in some way impinges on point of constitutional identity one, two or three, you then have to decide whether to press the nuclear strike button on those occasions. And that is going to involve very invidious and difficult choices and decisions for the respective national constitutional uh -huh. court. And more generally on this case, um, 
do you think there is a landing ground between Brussels and, and Warsaw? Um, we know that Angela Merkel, um, she's on her way out, but Angela Merkel has always been quite keen to make sure that despite all the tensions, we go for a compromise rather than for a clash. We don't want the EU to split apart. She's now on the way out. Um, and Brussels is um, adopting a much more kind of frontal posture towards Warsaw than it did in the past, especially by starting to withdraw the COVID recovery funds Poland um, uh, should have received. Are we headed towards a crash here? Or is there a landing ground, politically or otherwise, between um, um, Brussels and and, um, and and Poland? And Nicole, uh, Nicole Professor Kluna. Uh, it's a good question. <clears throat> I hope that there is. I think... Ultimately, this is a political challenge more so than it is a legal challenge, so it's obviously both. In terms of how the EU, how Brussels should respond, I do think that a strong reaction, a strong response is necessary. So I do think that the EU should put financial pressure on Warsaw and it should use legal instruments that are available to it to do so, but that shouldn't preclude the search also for some kind of political solution. I mean, in terms of, of finding a landing ground, of course, the EU won't, can't, shouldn't uh, compromise on what are its fundamental values. So there's no way for the EU to compromise uh, on, on the rule of law and judicial independence. Um, at the same time, of course, the EU doesn't micromanage uh, judicial reforms and it doesn't micromanage matters to do with justice systems of the member states. So... The Polish government, and hopefully, you know, somewhat persuaded by financial pressure, um, may be induced to make the concessions that it needs to make. Um, whether that happens, uh, I'm not sure. And I suppose it's it's a delicate balancing act because uh, I suppose in the more medium term, and and looking ahead to 2023 when there are next scheduled to be parliamentary elections in Poland, uh, uh, the best case scenario from the EU's point of view would be a change of government in Poland, and that a a more centrist, more moderate, more pro-EU government would come to power and, and Donald Tusk, the former um, uh, president of, of the council, is is now heading civic platform and, and those opposition forces, right, and, and, and maybe they'll be making some headway. But so in terms of the EU putting pressure on, which I do think it should because this is such a fundamental challenge, uh, I suppose it's a bit of a balancing act because uh, the Law and Justice Party, you know, it, when funds are withheld either from the Pandemic Recovery Fund or if the EU uses the other mechanism available, so if the Commission uh, uses for the very first time the new rule of law conditionality mechanism that's linked to the disbursement of, of funds from the budget, um, I suppose it, you can predict that, that the Law and Justice Party will try to use that against the domestic opposition and say that the domestic opposition are, are you know, bringing ruin on Poland and are encouraging the Commission to punish Poland and ordinary Polish people are paying the price. So there's going to be this kind of um, uh, contestation. So I suppose that's part of the calculations. In terms of punishing Poland and financially punishing Poland, uh, what will that do? How will that affect the opinions of ordinary Polish people? And will they see that their government is the cause of their problems and hopefully vote for a different government? Uh, or will they? Will people become more hostile to the EU? Will it have some kind of rally around the flag effect? Certainly you know, PIS will try to spin it that way. So I think there has to be a mixture of, of tougher responses using the mechanisms that the EU has available to it. So rule of law conditionality, um, holding back on pandemic recovery funds, uh, trying again with Article 7 TEU, which is the main political mechanism to uh, sanction violations of, of the EU's fundamental values. But at the same time, uh, not shutting off opportunities to negotiate and, and find um, some way for the Polish government to take the steps it needs to take. Um, Professor Craig, what do you make of this political landing ground? And more generally, do you think there is a landing ground possible, given the kind of a general context around um, democratic backsliding? And maybe if you have a kind of few thoughts on this, um, on this concept of uh, backsliding. Sure. Sure. So I think in one way, there's a, a landing ground, um, if I can put it bluntly, which is that given the way in which the constitutional uh, tribunal has been, um, its independence has been undermined, if the Polish government were in effect to signal to the constitutional tribunal 
that it wished the Constitutional Tribunal to back down, back off, qualify in some way, ruling K3 to uh, 21, I think it that would happen because we don't have an independent Constitutional Tribunal any longer. Um, so I think that's certainly, as it were, theoretically possible. Whether the Kaczynski government, in inverted commas, and the Polish Prime Minister are minded to do that is, I think, anyone's guess at present. Certainly when the Polish Prime Minister came to the European institution shortly after we had the decision in K321, he played very much hardball. He was very much not giving an inch, uh, going toe-to-toe, both in discussions within the European Commission and when he appeared before the European Parliament, etc. Now, that all may be good theatre and it may belie more emollient gestures operating behind the scenes, but that's certainly what we are seeing and it doesn't betoken well for a, a landing ground and compromise. So if I can put it this way, the judgment of the Constitutional Tribunal itself, as presently written, is wholly unacceptable from the point of view of the EU legal and political order. And the implications of that judgment for the enforceability of EU law within Poland are just quite unacceptable. So um, unless something shifts in that respect, whether at the behest of the Polish government or in some other way, then I don't see any obvious landing ground. I agree with Nicole that I think that the EU should take tough measures in this respect, and it should explore the possibility of using the conditionality regulation and withholding financial payments from the Polish government and from Poland more generally. My own view is that the conditions in the conditionality regulation to justify rule of law conditionality are met in this instance. That will depend to some extent, that's my own view, that would depend to some extent uh, on the ruling of the CJEU when it's going to be considering the issue of the degree of causality that must exist between a rule of law infirmity on the one hand and financial payments on the other. But subject to that ruling, it does seem to me that uh, that the circumstances which exist in Poland for invocation of the conditionality regulation are there. And look, the money, you know, it's a very significant sum of money and it's going to hit Poland hard. Um, As Nicole said, what the reaction from the Polish people is in those circumstances is difficult to assess. It could go either way. They could, on the one hand, say, look, this is all the EU's fault and it's not fair, etc., and become more anti-EU, it could push the other way against their government. Final word on this. Let us not forget a very central and simple and foundational point. Insofar as there is a rule of law problem here, this rule of law problem is not the EU's rule of law problem. Okay, insofar as there's a problem about in a liberal regime, this is not the creation of the EU. There's a whole raft of literature out there exploring in very sophisticated ways what the EU has done, what it can do to combat rule of law problems. It's a really sophisticated literature um, with many great contributions. At the same time, we should not forget that the root problem is not caused by the EU, and to some extent the EU is caught between a rock and the hard place. It is not a state, it does not have plenary authority, so it is having to try and do the best that it can with the tools at its disposal to combat a problem which is not of its own creation. 
And I think that's a political dilemma. Thanks a lot, Professor Craig. Thanks a lot, Professor Skikluna. Um, which was a, um, a dense conversation because it's uh, one about law and it can get quite tricky, but I thought we did a fantastic job of kind of going from the, the groundwork up. And um, thank you so much to both of you, and I hope all our listeners will be back next week. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, I want to thank all of you who are still with us because it was a dense topic, a complicated topic, but I thought we really wanted to do this for a long time because... Um, it's such an essential topic and one that kind of covers a lot of the issues we've been talking about. Uh, we're talking about French presidential election. We've been talking about um, about immigration um, and and the law of these, and all of these issues. Um, the question of a primacy of EU law is quite central. I remember when we made our episode on the um, uh, immigration crisis in in Spain, Morocco last last year. Uh, I was saying that. To a large extent, um, the political realm has been a little shackled by by the judiciary, and um, and um, and the people who believe that immigration is simply a question of having politicians do what they say, they're kind of missing the point. A lot of immigration is in the the, the consequence of discre- discretionary measures. It is the immigrants coming to Europe come there because they have the right to, and because the the European Court of Justice will protect that right. Um, so there's kind of a larger um, uh, uh, primacy of EU law conversation behind all of these topics. Um, I thought it was a very measured conversation. It was a very um, um, in-depth conversation. Um, it was it's actually quite interesting because I've been meeting a few um, diplomats over the past few weeks um, um, for personal and, and, and professional reasons, and a lot of them will tell me off the record. First of all, French diplomats are not kind of a anti-European. If anything, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is known to be one of the kind of more pro-European ministries in, in, in France. But what was interesting is a lot of them, especially those who dealt with kind of judiciary stuff, would would, would tell me um, that there was kind of a discomfort within French diplomatic circles at, first of all, kind of an enhanced um, scope of action of the EU over the past few months during covid but more generally, a feeling that the ECJ sometimes felt like it had this kind of mission, this kind of uh, missionary um, drive um, that is kind of uncomfortable. And to a large extent, the we talked about the 1964 Costa v. NL uh, ruling. And to a large extent, it's because the judges believe that for the EU to function, what was back then the uh, EEC, for the EEC to function, they needed... Um, they needed this kind of missionary drive because otherwise the whole experiment would collapse um, because, you know, rule of law is, is so central to, to, to the existence of the EU. Um, but nonetheless, this kind of discomfort among diplomatic circles at these how these judges sometimes feel they're invested in the mission rather than kind of be strictly applying um, EU law as it is. What I think is so interesting about this conversation is, is uh, as Professor Sikluna stressed, uh, you know, we've... You know, the primacy of, of EU law has was initially not enshrined in the treaties themselves. There wasn't really, I mean, member states weren't bound to let EU law supersede their, their national jurisprudence, not explicitly. And uh, what, I, what I found really interesting in, in what you said is that nevertheless, uh, you still have some level of... Um, of a conformity with with uh, with this principle uh, as a matter of, of practice, though, though not in principle, but at least as a matter of practice, the record has been that that member states have generally tended to respect the primacy of EU law in the areas where of shared competences. Obviously, this only applies to the areas where uh, the EU shares competences with member states, because in areas where the EU lacks competence, there is no question that the primacy is of national law. Um, so, so no, like you said, I, I thought this was a very worthwhile episode. It kind of goes, it, 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 we're going to be publishing this a, a few weeks after the fact, a few weeks after the Polish Constitutional Tribunal came out with its ruling contesting the primacy of EU law, or at least ruling that some of the articles of the Treaty of, on, on the, the European Union from 1992 conflict with the Polish constitution. So this is this episode is coming out with a bit of a lag, 
but still, I think I think this. Um, I mean, I'd like to think of this episode as some as more of a structural episode that we're going to then be able to come and revisit as as more flare-ups in this uh, fight. Uh, it makes me think of an article that um, I think Stephen Auer and Hans Konani published a few weeks ago saying we are reaching the limits of the construction of the EU through through the law, through the judiciary. Um, and, um, and they are saying that the primacy of EU law essentially rests on the fact that there, all the national courts have kind of accepted um, accepted it and didn't want to rock the boat too much. They, the, the national courts had a lot of trouble in the 60s, 70s, 80s accepting that notion. But nowadays, uh, they recognize it. But it is a very fragile contract that it only rests on the fact that national courts have decided they would not fight the uh, European Court of Justice. And now we are seeing this kind of this kind of limitation of it appear frontally. And again, it wasn't included. It was included in the 2005 referendum, to, um, Constitution for Europe. But again, the French and the Dutch rejected it by referendum. And it wasn't included in the 2008 Lisbon Treaty, which took a lot of the aspects of that 2005 Constitution, but crucially did not take the primacy of EU law. So I think we are seeing now how fragile this um, concept is. But speaking yeah. of which, um, and, uh, if you, and, go ahead. And just to finish off, uh, I, th- I thought I'd just comment to your point about migration. I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting that migration is seen by French diplomats, or at least by some people within the French uh, civil service establishment, as an area where the EU has been uh, creeping in. Uh, but what I think what I think is important there to stress is that uh, what, what I think the, the diplomats you spoke to were referring to is the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights, which is in Strasbourg, I think, uh, which is part, obviously, of the legal structure. It's part of the it's it's uh, part of the. the but w- whereas whereas the Court of Justice of the European Union, which is based in, uh, is it Luxembourg? I want to say it's Luxembourg, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, but the, the it, nevertheless, the, the Court of Justice. Yeah, it is Luxembourg. It is Luxembourg. The Court of Justice of the EU is tasked with interpreting the treaties, whereas the Court of Ju- the Court of uh, the European Court of Human Rights is tasked with interpreting the European Convention on Human Rights. This is just really a, a minor yeah, difference, but, I think. Yeah, and I think um, uh, the ECHR is part of a different organization, which is confusingly called the Council of Europe. Yeah, which is a much yeah. larger organization, which includes. Turkey and Russia somehow. Yeah. Um, and and the only thing that really matters about the Council of Europe is essentially the European Court of um, of Human Rights, which makes sure that the Convention on Human Rights um, is being respected by member states, but is not part of the uh, EU um, organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, um, and I also want to make sure to our listeners that if you want more of uncommon decency. We've been running a series of articles in Mace Magazine, which essentially builds up on our latest episodes. Um, it's not it's not a transcript or kind of a, a summary as much as we are kind of building on some of the threads of a podcast and put, putting it together in kind of a article slash op-ed at times. Um, so look up of a Mace Magazine um, uh, website and you'll see plenty of our featured articles over the past few weeks. And there'll be plenty more in the weeks to come. Um, we also want to take this time to talk about something quite tragic that happened the past week. Um, Jorge, do you want to lead us on that? Sure. Um, I think our, our listeners may remember uh, we um, in, in episode eight of the podcast, we hosted um, an academic and a former MEP by the name of Jorgi Schotflin, uh, who tragically passed away last week. Uh, so we thought we'd, uh, you know, spend, spend a little bit of time here to... Uh, uh, honor his memory and to uh, uh, and to express that our hearts go out to his family and to his loved ones. He was uh, deeply cherished. I think uh, I think that our our, our listeners or, or those of, of the, those of our listeners who who uh, remember the the episode will agree with us that Mr. Shuffling was a man of uh, extraordinary uh, intellect. Uh, he was also an incredibly kind man. I will always remember him as someone who was incredibly affable and gentle in the way that he. Uh, answered our, our questions and, and spoke to us. So, um, so um, um, uh, you know, we we um, we hope that uh, our our audience will join us in in uh, in, um, in in remembering him. Yeah, and if you want to listen to the episode, it's episode five, a contested Europe, 
which is a really deep time, deep down drive on um, what is liberal democracy, what is going in Hungary. Um, obviously, he was an academic, but he was also he was also a former Fidesz MP and MEP. So he had kind of a wealth of understanding what was going on in Hungary. Really a class man and someone who was really helping us in the background when we're thinking of putting up different episodes. We were actually discussing with him a few weeks ago about making a new episode on Hungary with him. Um, so really um, someone that matters a lot uh, to us and um, to, to many others. Um, pivoting away from, um, uh, from that, don't forget we've got a Patreon account which is a great way for us to see if there is a demand for kind of great interaction with you. Uh, we are thinking about creating paid tiers where people could interact with us, have special content, um, all of that. Um, so if you want to be involved in that, you can join us. Our Patreon should be back down below in our um, description of the episode. It's a great way for us to see if we um, could have a kind of large interaction with all of you, which is something we'd love to do. Uh, we're both quite busy. This is something we do on the side. Um, so um, unless we kind of see there's a, a lot of you who want to do this, um, I'm not sure we'll be able to find the time. But again, if there's a lot of you joining us, we would love to make this happen. Uh, special episodes, special content, interaction with all of you. So, you know, no need to contribute a lot. Just if you're interested, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, we would love to have your support. It really would help us with paying our material, um, inviting uh, quality guests in the future, and um, so on and so on. If you can't support us through Patreon, you can do some very basic stuff, such as rating the show, reviewing the show. Reviews really help. Um, it's a great way for us to kind of boost our, our visibility on the, in the podcast network. Um, so really, if you can't if you can't help us financially, it's a tough time. We will get it. Um, but we really appreciate uh, a rating or a review. These really go a long way for us. Anyways, thanks a lot, Jorge. Um, thanks a lot to our two uh, wonderful guests and uh, to all of you our listeners I, I say you um, see you next week see you next week